Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I am your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking some Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. And today I've got the second part of what may actually turn into three parts uh, of a conversation around Colorado Rockies narratives. This is an update, so if you didn't listen to part one, make sure you go back and listen to the last episode of the podcast. I guess guess you don't have to. You can listen to things out of order. Who am I to tell you what to do? Uh, But in general, this is an ongoing conversation that we're having not just over the last couple of podcasts, but really over the last several years and over the entire time I've been covering this team, right, and trying to figure out how do we get through some of the weird narrative nonsense. How do we get past so much of, quite frankly, the BS that surrounds this team, good, bad, indifferent, or otherwise, and make sure that we are doing our best to analyze what's actually there, right, and not fall into some of these traps. The other thing that has, of course, been really important to look at is how the Rockies have changed and shifted during the Bill Schmidt era since the Jeff Breidich era, and even how that was different from the Dan O'Dowd era. The next part of my list of false narratives about the Rockies is uh, basically all about money, right? I labeled it keeping up with the Dodgers. And the way I see it, there's a lot of folks out there who often ask the question, you know, why can't the Rockies just do what the Dodgers do? And because they're in the division and because they win a lot uh, and and to some degree, you know, even if you peel back some of the money stuff, I think the most legitimate part of this is why don't the Rockies invest more in the front office side of analytics and, and research and development, right? And on that, I've been consistent forever and I've asked them about it several times and I think they're getting better and better. But at the end of the day, it's still the, the case that they can't spend nearly as much as the Dodgers do, right? They could spend a higher percentage of their budget on research and development and analysis and all of those things. And I think that they should, but it's still going to be absolutely dwarfed by the Dodgers. I have long been of the belief that teams that don't have that kind of money are, of course, they're at a disadvantage. They simply are. There are some people who like to try to act like, well, maybe it's not the advantage you think it is because look at what the Rays do sometimes or look at what the A's have done at times over the years. But those are counterexamples, not a rule, right? Uh, A really helpful way to think about it is that teams that have money, and I mean monster money, the Yankees, Cubs, the Cardinals, the Red Sox, the Dodgers, and the Giants. Those six institutions of baseball have massive amounts of money that they can spend. And so if you think of it, it's like a race where they get a head start. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be caught, especially if it's a longer distance race. And we all know that baseball is a marathon. But still, if you're getting a 10, 20, 50-yard head start in a marathon, you're still getting an advantage, even if that advantage can be overcome. So a lot of times when people talk about this, I I feel like there's been this misnomer over the years that's largely been dealt with, I think, uh, to the credit of the media that I'm often criticizing for not doing a good enough job on this. I do think there's been a bit of a, just a stand-up to say, you can't call the Monforts cheap. Like, it just doesn't track with reality. People did it for years. I mean, they were even called the cheap farts, right? That was the very clever, very non-elementary school way of talking about the Rockies owners, right? Because do they spend as much as the Dodgers or the Yankees or those other teams? No. But when it comes to that next grouping, 
Essentially, right, if there's 10 rich teams, 10 middle-class teams, and 10 poor teams, the Rockies have more often than not throughout their history been a middle-class team, and they've spent middle-class money. It has depended from year to year based on how many tickets they've sold. And, and that's the other thing that I always think is really funny. You know, people have these massive theories about whether or not you can protest enough and enough people don't go to the games that you can force a sale or you can fo- force maybe front office changes or or whatever else there. But you have 30 years of history now where clearly what happens is when fewer people go to the games, less money is spent on the next year's team. And when more people go to the games, guess what? More money is spent on the next year's team. And so when you look at the biggest budgets in Rockies history uh, compared to the rest of the league, you'll find that they come in years like 96 and 97, right after they had made the playoffs in 95, right? They spent a lot on the teams from 2008 to 2010, but didn't quite get, you know, where they were hoping to there. And a similar thing with the money that they spent in 18 and 19. Was it spent wisely? Was it spent well? Clearly in hindsight, not, but the money was spent. So, you know, there, there's a very real thing here when it comes to the money giving you an advantage and the Rockies need to do things differently. One thing that I've talked about a lot that everyone's talked about a lot that has been their big bugaboo in current times. I think Bill Schmidt's worst thing that he's done to this point is the Chris Bryant contract, right? Because that is one of those situations where it does feel like you're trying to keep up with the Dodgers when you pay guys that amount of money. Now, you could then, in hindsight, say they never should have signed the Nolan Arenado deal, and they never should have signed the Cargo and Tulo deals, and heck, they never should have signed the Todd Helton deal, right? If you really want to get that deep into it. From a competitive standpoint, each one of those deals hindered them in one way or another, the same way the Chris Bryant one is now. One big difference that I've pointed out before is that this is the only one. The Rockies have had a weird history of overpaying a group of star players and then not being able to build around them. Right now, they've just got the one. Now, if they decide they want to pay star money to a second player this offseason, they're going to be right back in that same situation, right? Where you're heavily reliant on two guys, one of whom has given you essentially nothing yet. He's been hurt, and we're not going to do the whole Chris Bryant conversation over again right now. But, yeah, uh, I've often talked, too, before about how the Rockies absolutely play in the wrong division. They should not be playing three California teams who not only do they have totally different ball-playing environments in terms of the the ballparks being pitchers' parks, it being sea level in California, the humidity, all of that type of stuff. But then you have this massive difference in markets where the Dodgers have a $2 billion television deal. Both the Giants and Padres have spent a ton of money lately. Obviously, it hasn't worked out so well with the Padres. And that's the last point that I wanted to make uh, on the money bit before we move on to the farm system is that we've also seen now some pretty stark examples, particularly the New York Mets and the San Diego Padres, that getting new ownership and putting smart people in charge and spending a whole lot of money on good players does not automatically equate to success. There are so many other things that go into it. And so while I understand over the years people wishing that the Rockies would spend a little bit more money on this, that, or the other. And I do think there are individual instances, for example, not just paying DJ LeMahieu whatever he was asking for. Like, 
there are those moments where they get cheap at the right times or John Gray, you know, and it's not because they don't have the money to spend. It's because they don't evaluate that player to be worth that contract. Those are mistakes of player evaluation, not of spending money, though, right? I do think that they've gotten a little bit better with the giant caveat here of the Chris Bryant thing. Now, if they go out this offseason and Bill Schmidt spends the money spread out, right? Six or seven million here, four or five million there, picks up several different players, doesn't put all the eggs in one basket, then I think we can say, okay, to some extent, they're learning here. Now, the next thing on my list is about the evaluations of the farm system. And this is something that continues to be extraordinarily frustrating to watch unfold. And I, I really won't forget a particular conversation. I'm not going to rehash it out here that I had two years ago where there were really eight or nine people in a panel conversation just shouting down on me about how terrible the Colorado Rockies farm system was. And... One, they had just graduated a ton of prospects out of the system that had been pretty good. And a lot of those prospects had helped them win in 17 and 18, right? The entire pitching staff, Marquez, Freeland, Gray, Sensatella, all those guys came out of the system. McMahon, uh, Dahl at the time, right? Tapia at the time, these guys that were coming up. Trevor Story, obviously the big, I got to him last, even though he made the biggest impact of any of those players during that time, guys like Scott Oberg, right, all came out of their farm system and pushed them into those postseasons. Now, when you go back and look at the way their farm system was ranked at the time, the highest you were going to find it was ninth or 10th. A lot of times you'd find it 13, 14, 15. The team that was regularly ranked number one at that time was the Pittsburgh Pirates, whose group of prospects never took them to the postseason where the Rockies did. So this evaluation of the farm system has long been caught up in a bunch of nonsense. For one, people use the Coors Field bias against players who aren't even playing at Coors Field yet. I see this happen all the time when I'm reading player evaluations. If a guy's got a decent power profile, but not a monster one, I say, well, you got to hit more home runs than that or more doubles than that to really make an impact at Coors Field. You know, if a guy's got an okay but not flashy ERA as a pitcher, I'll say, well, an okay ERA, you put that guy at Coors Field. They said this with Kyle Freeland. This was the consensus on Kyle Freeland was that because he had basically a 4-4 ERA in the minors. You, know, you bring him up to the majors and put him at Coors Field, naturally, he's going to be far worse. Right? I've mentioned before and talked a lot about how some of this is a little bit on the Rockies because they don't share a ton of information with scouts like, you know, the Keith Laws of the world. And there's also this sort of ongoing battle about whether or not the way the Rockies do things differently has been particularly fruitful for them as an organization. But what you do see is a massive change in the last two years in the way the Rockies farm system is evaluated based entirely on the way the players have played. I shouldn't say entirely, based 90 plus percent. Bill Schmidt has not done a lot, especially before this trade deadline, of making moves to add players to the farm system, right? He hasn't injected a ton of new talent. 
We saw Ezekiel Tovar go from a guy who was just in the system to a top 50 prospect in one off system and a season. And guess what? Now he's no longer in the system. So now he no longer counts toward your farm ranking, right? Despite the fact that you've got this 22 year old gold glove caliber shortstop on your team, it's going to immediately flip and hurt the Rockies farm system that he's fully graduated. So you've got guys like that. You've got guys like young Kel Fernandez, who's already in the system who just wasn't being evaluated properly before. The Rockies weren't giving credit. And as I've often said, it's it's not that there's some massive conspiracy against them. It's that when push comes to shove, when, when a national evaluator is looking at two different prospects with similar profiles, and one of them is going to end up having to play half his games at Coors Field, they're going to go with the other player more often than not because it's a safer evaluation. Because Coors Field provides for so much chaos. But as the system has gotten better and better, and as these evaluators have had to increase where it stands, and now it's in some places top tens, and I think after this year, once we get some reevaluations again after the trades and other things that have happened, it might go up. But it's not because, again, it's not because of an injection of talent. It's just because people were missing it before. Or it's because the Rockies have done an extraordinary job of developing players like Tovar and Yankiel Fernandez and Drew Romo and Adiel Almador. That's, I just named four players who are all in the top 100, who this time a year ago were not. Maybe Tovar was. But then before that, wasn't. Right? So it's because those guys either have always had the talent and it was getting overlooked or the Rockies have developed them very well. But the two that really stand out to me are, of course, guys on the Major League roster right now. Nolan Jones and Hunter Goodman. Those are players who did not come with top prospect pedigree. Nolan Jones had started to lose a lot of the shine on his profile, being a little bit older, striking out so much, and not showing up yet in Cleveland at the major league level before coming to the Rockies. And Hunter Goodman was just never one of those guys. Again, kind of like Fernandez and Tovar the years before they popped in the top 100, but Hunter Goodman never came close to being a top 100 prospect in baseball. And I keep bringing that metric up because that's what was used two years ago to tell me the Rockies have no future. They have no, there's nothing good happening under Bill Schmidt. This farm system is terrible. They have zero prospects in the top 100. Well, now they have five. And that doesn't include Tovar, who, like I said, has graduated. Nolan Jones, who I don't think ever appeared on the top 100, or certainly hadn't for the last two years, and not since he's been a Rocky. And he might be the most exciting young player they have. Or Hunter Goodman, who never appeared on these lists either. And he might really and truly be the next Josh Donaldson with the baseball bat. Guy's an incredible hitter. They've had a few of those popping up around the system as well. Some of them draft picks that they've taken, like Jordan Beck. And the guy they got for Trevor Story, despite people continuing to say that they didn't get anything for Trevor Story and Sterling Thompson. The number one pick from this last season, Chase Dollander, is on there. But this is one of those things 
One of the reasons why, and, and I know it may seem like I harp on these things a little too much sometimes, or why am I, like the Rockies have clearly earned their bad reputation. Why is it so important to fight back against saying that the farm system is terrible when all of these evaluators seem to agree that it's terrible? Well, this is why, right? This is the reason why it's important to say, now, hang on a minute, just because the Keith Laws of the world were telling you a year and a half ago that the Rockies farm system was among the worst in all of baseball and that there was no potential future here. And now you see all of these guys chomping at the bit, knocking on the door, putting up monster numbers in the minors and then coming up and putting up some pretty darned impressive numbers in the majors when it comes to Tovar Jones and Goodman in particular. We'll see about Elaurice Montero, who is still in many ways a prospect, but has long since graduated from prospect status, right? And that's another thing, that a lot of times these conversations get you caught up on technicalities. The question shouldn't be, how many people who have yet to exhaust their rookie status uh, that the Rockies have in their front right farm system rankings can be really, really technical. As I've often said before, what you should be most concerned about is just depth. How many players does your team have that are under the age of, it might be 25, it depends on their contract, right? So Nolan Jones is 25 years old, but because he's a rookie, you've got him under team control and the ability to potentially sign a very team-friendly contract for several years now, right? And you expect several years of progression. It's a slightly different age for Tovar at 22, but they're essentially in the same stage of their careers, Right. So the question is, how many guys do you have in that 25 to down to 18, I guess, but 18 is not contributing at the major league level next year, but who can really help your ball club win when you include not only the guys who are coming up through the system and having monster minor league seasons, really, other than the guys that got hurt, Zach Veen, Jordy Vargas, Gabriel Hughes, other than that, you just got a deluge of great news from the way Rockies minor leaguers have performed this season. If those other guys come back healthy, they're going to have one of the best farm systems in all of baseball next year. Not only that, on top of it, they're going to have one of the better young cores. So that means they're just going to continue to inject young talent into this roster. As I've talked about all season, the big caveat there is where's the starting pitching coming from? Most of these guys are position players outside of Hughes, Vargas, and Dollander. There's not a ton to get excited about from a starting pitching standpoint, though there are a few. There's some guys going down to Arizona Fall League. I'm particularly interested in Chris McMahon, though there have been a lot of injuries there. Uh, Jaden Hill, Joe Rock, but all of those guys had good seasons. So again, you got to take with a grain of salt when, uh, especially during that time when people weren't able to get out and see prospects, you know, when a bias can creep in, it will. And when it comes to Rockies prospects, that's one of the easiest places to just give the benefit of the doubt to another team's prospect. Uh, and while I understand that process, it does lead ultimately to some pretty big miss swings when it comes to evaluating the Rockies farm system. All right, the next false narrative I have on my list is that success is always a fluke. I don't know that there's uh, an extension of this contract uh, conversation to have right now because, well, the Rockies obviously aren't experiencing a great deal of success here. So I'll just move past that one and take us to the next one, 
which has to do with the Rockies and postseason awards. Now, you might think, hey, this isn't relevant either. The Rockies don't have anybody in the MVP or Cy Young conversations, and Bud Black certainly isn't going to win Manager of the Year. However, there are some interesting ones to note, and I'll be very curious to see, particularly if Brenton Doyle wins a gold glove. Because this is one of those things where he has two major things working against him, right? He's on the Rockies. And everyone listening to this just knows that when it comes to award voting, that works against you. There's some people out there who try to pretend like it doesn't, and they're funny. At this point, it's just funny. So he's on the Rockies, and we know that's going to hurt you when it comes to getting votes for awards. Secondly, he's been among the worst hitters in all of baseball this year, guys batting a buck eighty at any given time, right? He's he's been a little better lately, and and we've had those conversations. But let's not get too much in the mud on his offense. Anyone looking in from outside is going to go, that guy is awful. But will they get past that and look at the defensive numbers? You know, get some highlight reels. I'm not sure how you know people who vote on Gold Glove end up making their decisions if they really do put in the research or if they just kind of go based on reputation and, and feel. But this will be a big test of which one of those things is true, because Brenton Doyle absolutely should win the Gold Glove. No questions asked. Hand down. He should run away with it. He should probably win the Platinum Glove. Almost every defensive statistic that we have, and I'm not overwhelmingly in love with the defensive statistics, but when every single one of them agrees, that's pretty conclusive. It also matches up with the eye test, and it's every element of his game. It's the speed, it's the jumps, it's the athleticism, it's the throws he can do and does do everything out there. He's the best center fielder the Rockies have ever had by a long shot. At this point, it's quite frankly embarrassing. He's better than most other of the best Rockies center fielders combined. From a statistical standpoint, what he's doing out there is unreal. Brenton Doyle should win a gold glove. If he doesn't, we'll know that this particular narrative continues to persist and hurt this team when it comes to individual awards. The other stuff is all a little bit more debatable, right? And there's all there are almost always these things where, you know, for example, the 2007 MVP, Matt Holliday versus Jimmy Rollins. If it had always been the case that defense had mattered around that time, you could say, oh, yeah, I understand saying, yeah, Holliday's the better hitter, but Rollins is still a good hitter and a much better defender at a premium position. But then when you look at the MVP votes all around it, and see that defense and premium position didn't matter at all as left fielders were winning them for hitting a ton of home runs, right? You're like, no, wait a minute. Where's the consistency of logic here, right? So there could be some of that with these others. Ryan McMahon deserves a gold glove more than Nolan Arenado does, but at this point, probably not more than Cabrian Hayes. Going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Ezekiel Tovar deserves to be nominated for a gold glove, but it probably deserves to go to Dansby Swanson. So you can't throw too much of a fit over that one. The one that I think, and I'm going to write on this, that is really interesting is that Corbin Carroll has kind of run away with the National League Rookie of the Year and and has done so for a while. And 
at the end of the year, his statistics are just going to be far and away. But he's one of the better rookies we've seen in a little while, actually, not just this year. He's putting up a monster season for Arizona. Five-plus win. He might get to a six-win season. However, on a game-to-game basis, Nolan Jones is right there with him. He's played about 50 fewer ball games. And their OPS plus numbers are roughly the same, right? Corbin Carroll seen as a more valuable defender in a lot of ways, but of course Jones has that big arm. They're both speed demons. Jones has more pop in the bat than most guys really. <laughs> and yeah, on a game to game basis, if you extrapolate it out over the closest season, their wins above replacement would be very, very close to each other. Now, I do think ultimately you've got to give the edge to Carroll, I guess even just for playing the whole season. Uh, the reason Nolan Jones wasn't here for the first two months of the season is because Nolan Jones wasn't hitting the baseball at all. It's very tough to ask a team to carry a guy out of spring training when he goes oh for spring training with a 45% strikeout rate. Like Nolan Jones needed that extra seasoning, needed to work on his swing, and apparently did. <laughs> right? He worked on it, and it's it's working well now. So I do think you've got to give the edge to Corbin Carroll there. But there's an interesting case to be made for Nolan Jones. And while it seems like a weird thing to feel snubbed by not coming in second or third or fourth, if Jones isn't in the top five in Rookie of the Year voting, that'll be another one. And honestly, both of them should be. Tovar and Jones should both be in the top five, even though Corbin Carroll should win it. But that'll be another thing to keep our eyes on. Well, that's all the Colorado Rockies narratives I've got for you today. There's one last really big one that I want to talk about that we're kind of always talking about, but we're going to apply it to the 2023 season. That is, of course, the Coors Field conundrum. The hitting stats, the pitching stats, home and away, the hangover. How are they dealing with it? Are there any players in particular who seem to have shown themselves well? Yeah, get ready for a whole podcast about splits. But for now, I really appreciate you all listening into this episode of 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I hope you will check out all of the other podcasts and all of the written content over at milehighsports.com. And of course, please subscribe to the YouTube channel where I've got all kinds of short videos, some of them three minutes, some of them just one minute long on Colorado Rockies history, interesting facts, fun stories, all that kind of stuff. I'm really proud of what we're doing on the video side right now. So if you haven't yet, please head over there, subscribe to the channel totally for free at Mile High Sports on YouTube. Other than that, I can only ever ask that you continue to be absolutely awesome out there. You know that I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.